Fellow tennis nerds, uh, I'm here with a distinguished guest today, Christopher Clary. You might have read his work. He's been writing 20 years for New York Times as a sports journalist, focusing mainly on tennis, I would say. And he has written a great book, which I can really recommend, uh, called The Master. It's about Roger Federer, who you might have heard of. And now he's working on a new book uh, that I'm very excited about, about Rafa Nadal. How are you, Chris? Hey, Jonas. Good to see you. No, I'm good. I'm here in uh, north of Boston, up in the woods, and... Uh getting ready to watch some Wimbledon and write a book. So it's going to be busy. So this is your writer's lodge, kind of. This is my house here where I'm at. And um, we've been here about 20 years as a base. Lots of travel, obviously. Um, and it's a place uh, that's been good. Been good to my writing and, and good to us. So I'm happy to be back here. And my life just changed. I just left the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, you know, formally. So after 30 plus years of working for them and Definitely a big move for me, but excited about this next book and this next chapter of life. What prompted you to make that decision after such a long time? Was it just a change at the, the paper or something? No, actually, it was my call, 100%. Um, I felt like at this stage of my life, I'm in my late 50s now. I've been a daily journalist, like I said, for 32, actually more, you know, almost 40 years. I worked in San Diego before the New York Times, and I felt like it was... Uh, really a positive experience writing the master about Federer. It was, you know, painful as we'll discuss as <laughs> you, you a novelist yourself, as you mentioned, you know what it's like, but um, ultimately it was a really positive experience. I feel very lucky that it was so, it was so positive and really enjoyed, you know, the planning, most of the process of writing it. And I really enjoyed also, I think, which is key. I think I really enjoyed the promotion of it afterward, talking to people all over the world, people like yourself, about uh, about the book, about tennis, about Federer, the lessons we can learn. And now I'm going to do one called The Warrior uh, with the same publishers uh, about Nadal. I can't talk too much about the details of it because it's obviously still in process, but I just felt like it was a great opportunity. The publishers gave me an excellent deal, and I basically had to choose at this point in my life whether I wanted to keep writing daily reports for the New York Times or take the break and do the book. I couldn't do both. And if I were 10 years younger... I probably wouldn't have made this choice, but at this stage, it felt like the right thing to do, and I'm excited. But talk to me in about six months' time, and I'll tell you if I was right. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're, you're right. I think focus is uh, so important, I think, in life. I mean, today, everybody's, and myself, very much so, you're distracted all the time. Like, there's phones, there's stuff, there's, you know, life is always going on. So I think, like, doing that kind of romantic thing of focusing on your craft, even though it, it's probably going to be somewhat painful at times, obviously, <laughs> because you sit down... You know you have to do it, and uh, you might not feel in the mood, right? Not inspired that day. Um, so it's it's a tough one, but it's also some kind of, I mean, nothing good comes out of, of the ease, right? So it's, it's probably good that you do some suffering there, right? Yeah, I think probably, I mean, I've never been a fiction writer except maybe at university taking some classes. I think nonfiction is probably a little more uh, straightforward than fiction. In fiction, you got to be in that creative mindset and, and be able to really enter other worlds in a way that you create yourself. And, and nonfiction, hopefully you're not doing that. <laughs> That's the idea, not to be, to be writing any fiction. And I think you have the, the challenge with nonfiction is, from my limited experience, is just there's so much material. And how do you organize it? How do you structure it? And I think that's going to be the, uh, the challenge, both fun and nasty, about this one. Yeah, for the master, you, you had lots of personal conversations with Roger to kind of base that on. You have obviously a lot of like personal insight, uh, connection. Um, what prompted you to make that decision? Because it was a, you know, obviously a big step. You were writing like daily for the New York Times. 
lots of work, and then you want to create this this book. And it's, it's like per the timing was kind of perfect, you know, with the retirement happening. I guess soon thereafter, you know, when you you have to, after you publish it. Uh, so so how did that process go from like idea in your head until like you finished product? You know, like a lot of sports writers, like a lot of journalists. I mean, we all have dreams of writing books. Uh, I know I have since I was a young a young boy. Actually, really, I mean, I grew up reading books after books in the library and Sports Illustrated magazine, which was a big thing in our culture in the U.S. for a long time as a kid. It was really, really high quality when I was growing up. So I think we all had, you know, literary ambitions of some sort. A lot of us do. And just for me, I was so taken up with my family and my daily work with the New York Times, which was so fantastic in many ways. I was so lucky to have it and got a chance to cover many, many sports all over the world for you know, three decades. And tennis has been my main thing that I know the best, but I've done just about every sport you can think of over the years, too. So I just felt like um, along the way, I'd met a lot of people, I met a lot of famous athletes, interviewed a lot of people. But the connection with Federer, for a lot of reasons, some of them coincidental, some of them not, was really particularly deep and really, really rich in terms of the connections that I've had with him over the years and the opportunities that I got to really sit down with him in depth from a pretty young age all the way through his career. And there was really nobody else like that that I came across as a famous athlete or a prominent athlete. And I just think ultimately, I don't know how you are, but for me, there's always that equation of, you know, do you want to feel disappointment or do you want to feel regret? And I guess I don't want to live with regret. And if I hadn't done the book, having had all that material and all that opportunity, I think I would have really regretted it. So I'd rather live with the disappointment of maybe I don't do it as well as I hope to or whatever. And honestly, you know, uh, a lot of it has to do with the subject matter. People really connect with Federer all over the world for a lot of different reasons, but the book was a big success. So really, there's no disappointment for me to deal with uh, after the fact. I think just um, you can always do better. You can always find another person to talk to, another angle to look at. But with the time that I had, I felt like I, I did the best I could do. And ultimately, the hardest thing about the book was really, uh, I think, marshalling all the information. I talked to Roger over 20 years, more than 20 times, a lot of times, you know, in depth. Uh, he's not my friend. He's uh, my subject. I'm not his friend. Uh, I'm, his, I'm a journalist interviewing him, but we had a good professional connection. And uh, I think the hardest thing was just figuring out how to present that the best way. And ultimately, I didn't want to do a biography where it was like, you know, Roger was born in Basel. His parents, you know, took him out of the cradle and placed him in a, I didn't want to have it be like that. I wanted it to be based around a little more creative uh, structure, and the way I, I think the way it worked for me was taking it and making it very location-based. The places where we did the interviews, but also the places that mattered the most in his life and in his career. And so the book was built around these different places all the way through, probably 20, 22 places in, in total, every, everything from Basel to Écublon um, in Switzerland, where he was training as a, a teenager when he first left home to South Africa, where his family, his mother is from, and where he played his exhibition with Nadal, where I went and saw that. So all these different places have mattered. And then, of course, Wimbledon, uh, Melbourne, Australia, Paris, France, um, and, um, and also uh, New York. So those, those were all the key, the key spots. But the, the challenge in that, Jonas, I won't go on much longer here, but the challenge on that was to find a way, if it's not chronological, if you're going to use a chapter on Wimbledon, say, and you put it early in your book because it needs to be because Roger ended up winning pretty early on and he won Junior Wimbledon there as well. How do you integrate the 20 times he played after that within that chapter? So that was the real challenge of that structure. I loved the structure initially, but I kind of came to be thinking it was a bit, <laughs> a bit more than I should have 
challenge myself with because it was very hard to get the timeline right at times. But I, I think ultimately we got it. And I'm glad I did it that way because I think he's such a global guy. I mean, the way he sees the world, the way he's lived his life, the way he wants to live his life, very international. So that, that was the way that had to be. Yeah, I like the structure. I thought it was very creative. And I also thought it gave kind of um, like a good overview of, of his life, you know, and his structure, like you said, it was thought through because it's, it's easy to write maybe an ABC biography where it's like facts, facts, facts. But this felt more personal. It felt more like based on actual stories that were key in his development as a player and a, and a person as well. Because I think you really had a good balance there of talking about Roger as a person and as a player and the whole team around him as well, Mirka and the financial side of Roger and everything, and which made the book, you know, I read other biographies about Roger, um, but none as good as this one, not even close, because it just had all that, all the extra information, but also structured in a way that was entertaining to read. Yeah, thanks, Jonas. I appreciate that. I mean, a lot went into it. It's obviously 20 plus years of spending time with him and really writing about him a lot, and then finding a way to take a different perspective once you've made the decision to write long form how do you kind of not forget all that, put that aside a little bit, and then re-report and rethink it? And that's that was actually the fun of it, to be honest, looking back on it, was being able to you know, go back and say, what did I miss? What sort of big themes might I have missed along the way? You know, definitely it's that forest and the trees metaphor, and it's true. I mean, you're so close to it, you don't always see it. And what really helped me was to go back and, and talk to everybody I hadn't talked to, who would talk to me. I never did get a chance to speak with Merka again, his wife, for the book. That was not something Roger wanted to do. Um, but um, everybody else over the years that had, had been important, I think, to his story, not Peter Carter, obviously his coach from Australia who passed away sadly very young, but a lot of people I hadn't spoken with as a daily print journalist and hearing what they thought about Roger's path now after it was nearing the end. And um, those conversations were really rich. And also it was important to me to try to get inside the people who were important to him. So maybe many, many biographies of the people that were part of his path, particularly guys like Pierre Paganini um, and guys like um, Ivan Lubacic, who coached him as well, Peter Carter, even though I didn't know him personally, trying to get to his story through people who did know him. Um, and then some of his rivals who I had, in the early years especially, who we've forgotten because we've become so big three focused now in our view of men's tennis Obviously, you had to write about Novak in a, in a profound way in the book and about Nadal. But also, you know, Roger started off with rivals like Leighton Hewitt, Murat Safin, Andy Roddick. I wanted to go back and look at those people and really get their sense of things. And I was lucky that they were willing to talk to me. So that, that made a big difference, I think, for the book. Yeah, I think you sometimes forget. I mean, sports and life move so fast. So you sometimes forget about these stars of yesteryear that weren't quite of the level of the goats because they took all the grand slams for such a long time pretty much you know you have a few exceptions with del potro for example and safin early before federer came along uh, but now it's all about the goats and the goats and if you would write like a book about novak djokovic what would the title be do you have one in your head <laughs> i will tell you on, on our podcast if i ever do that that'd be good yeah yeah but no that for sure good. i mean it's you know you can't you can't not think about it but I, let me get through number two here and we'll see how this one goes yeah, yeah, because it's like you're thinking, oh, the warrior perfect, and the the master perfect, and you know, and then then you start popping in some some uh, some different uh, adjectives for Novak as well. You know, he's uh, hey, feel free, Jonas. I'd love to hear your suggestion, but I mean, you tell me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now he's for he, for me. He's a he's a chess player. Like I mean, I was always a a, a big Roger fan, and uh, got I was also fortunate to meet him at least once. You know, and and uh, talk to him. 
and rough a few times. And Novak, you know, lives in Marbella, so it's a bit easier access at least. You know, can go down and watch him practice here in Spain. Um, but I'm fascinated by these guys, and I, I always, you know, you know, as a person around tennis, you always start to think about what what makes them so special. Because tennis is one of the di most difficult sports in the world, I would say. Uh, the, you know, you need the physicality, the technique, the you know, everything needs to come together. What is kind of the special ingredient in, in Roger and Rafa and Novak, would you say? Well, I think it, the answer is different in each, you know, and, and uh, I'm not going to get into Rafa too much only because I feel like I'm going to get a lot into that a lot in the book and I I'd rather talk about it with you when we're done with it as opposed to starting it. But um, one thing that's really interesting is just, just, just to see how, obviously, the results, you see these guys are extremely competitive uh, at the highest level. I think what separates these guys especially is the longevity of that competition and the longevity of that excellence. I mean, just look at a guy like Bjorn Borg, you know, um, close to Swedish hearts and close to many hearts. I mean, the guy only lost twice at Roland Garros. Uh, Rafa lost three times. So but Bjorn <laughs> yeah, played exactly. not as long, and uh, and Bjorn couldn't ultimately take the the strain of, of what it took to be that good and for and be that dominant and to and to sustain it. So I think... Really, the most remarkable thing about these three guys to me is, a, is the sustained excellence. And they came to it you know, from somewhat different backgrounds, for sure. I mean, obviously, Novak, radically different than Rafa and Roger, for sure. Uh, Rafa and Roger you know, have a little bit more commonality, I would say. Um, the difference with Rafa is that it's basically a, you know, a, a Tony and Rafa show. I mean, it's his uncle and Rafa, obviously the whole family. Whereas Roger had a lot of different influences, um, and so did Novak. Novak, Novak had Yelena Gencic, who was his his inspiration and his mentor, kind of Tony Nadal style, outside of his family, young. But then they all soon moved on. Whereas Rafa never did move on really formally until much, much later in life. So I guess that's where they they separate in their origin stories. And and Novak obviously had to fight through so much more just to get to a, a place where he could even. You know, play tennis at a high level because of all the obstacles with Serbia and ex-Yugoslavia and everything else. But that internal drive has to be there, and I think the early years are so critical. I mean, you can't you can't get it wrong as a as a boy in tennis or a girl in tennis and then end up being a great player. You have to get you have to get it more or less right. There are different ways to get it right as a youth, but you know you can't overcome that. It's it's just too important on the technique side, the mentality side, and everything else. Yeah, talking about the youth, I mean, we have a guy now who uh, looks like, I mean, in my, in my opinion, he's like in a lab product from Rafa and Roger's DNA, right? Carlos Alcaraz. <laughs> and he's, he's, you know, won slam already, semifinals with, against Novak. You know, he was, had cramps, which was a bit, with, bit weird or sad, you know, how, how do you put it? But where do you think his place in history will be? And, and do you watch him with the same kind of reverence as you did with, you know, Ro Roger and Rafa, for example? You know, I don't want to burden Carlos with, with too much. I got him to know him a little bit, actually. I've interviewed him a few times already um, with the New York Times uh, opening that door, and, and I spent some time with him early on. I, I would say, you know, I watch him with incredible pleasure. Uh, it really is similar to watching Roger early on. I mean, I remember watching Federer um, in that match against Sampras 2001, watching him destroy us in Davis Cup in 2001, which I talk about in the book, beat the U.S. pretty much single-handedly in Basel. I mean, it's just, just a pleasure to watch tennis shots being produced in that manner. Um, and the difference with Roger would be that, you know, Roger did it, ultimately had to do it in a very self-contained way to succeed. He had to put on a mask, you know, Bjorn Borg-like, and uh, find a way to contain everything. 
to make his tennis shine. Whereas Carlos is not like that. Carlos is somebody who I think needs to express a bit to be able to play his best, as he's talked about um, in some interviews and talked about with me too. Just he's he's at his best when he's expressive a bit and, and sharing things with the public. And that is a very special uh, formula, I think, for public who's going to watch him play, hopefully over many years, because you can really connect with him. I mean, the Federer beauty of the game, the dignity of the process, the elegance of it all was very appealing. But there's a connective tissue emotionally with, with Carlos and, and the public, which is very special. Um, and so I, I think that'll be, if he can stay healthy, and the, I agree the cramps were, were disturbing and unexpected to me. I know he's had some issues with that in the past against Center in Miami, for example. He later said that he'd had some problems against Tsitsipas at the U.S. Open back in 2021. I didn't notice that, but obviously he did. But to see it be that debilitating and that big a match, considering how well they were both playing and how that match was setting up, really, really uh, unsettling. So we'll see how it goes forward. But you know, a lot of young guys have had issues and Remember James Blake from our country in the U.S. having trouble with that early and conquers it. But as far as the game, um, it's just electric. Uh, I mean, I, I never get tired of watching him play. I went down to Mallorca, to, not Mallorca, listen to me. I went down to Alicante and to uh, the Ferrero Academy. Spent a couple days there uh, in December 2021. And I went down to kind of watch practice and just observe him in his environment there. And I'm not sure if you've been there or not, but... Definitely uh, wasn't going down super excited about watching practice for a couple of days, but I loved it. I mean, I just I sat down next to the, the court with Ferrero and Alcaraz for a couple of days, and I just didn't want to leave. I mean, it was just everything he does with a racket in hand is is often spectacular. You know, it's just the way he moves, the aerial quality to his tennis, the way he produces the shots, um, the intensity that goes into each shot, but also the joy that goes into each shot. So I don't want to burden him with. 20 slams or 15 slams or 14 French Opens, but he is, for me, the, clearly the most exciting talent in tennis and one of the most exciting talents in, in sports right now. So we'll we'll see where it goes. I hope he can fulfill his potential, whatever that is. Yeah, I think I think he's one guy that seems uh, tough to burden. Sometimes you feel like you're putting a lot of uh, hopes and expectations on, on players and they're like, oh, you know, I'm <clears throat> sorry, I'm feeling it. You know, they're feeling, you feel that they're feeling it. Uh, you've seen that over in history, but Carlos seems to just lap it up. Like he seems naturally born for the big time sports and the screen, and it's like he's destined for it. Uh, but the asterisk always seems to be the body. So uh, you know, just fingers crossed, and usually they figure these things out. But I wanted to get to that because tennis has changed so much. You covered tennis for for so long now, and and what what have you seen as changes from like 90s to now uh, in how the game has evolved and everything around it? Well, I, I think I think just the ultimate professionalization of it started with, you could say, Ivan Lendl, really, or Navratilova. That was before my time, just before I started covering tennis in the late 80s. They had sort of reached their peaks in the 80s, um, and they both took the professionalization of tennis and, and the structure of their training and everything and their hygiene of life and all that to a new level. But these guys today, with the means at their disposal – um, these players today have, have taken it even farther and they've done it with, you know, very specialized teams. They've done it with, um, I think the art of recovery and recuperation. You've seen a lot more use of, um, you know, STEM and different things like that to be able to recover. It used to be kind of, you know, pop some ice on or hop in the ice bath. It's a lot more than that now. Um, and just each, each player at the higher level now because of the prize money getting better for the guys in the top hundred, whereas, 
maybe four or five guys back in the early 2000s could afford to have a really solid team. Now a lot of guys can. So I think that's that's a good trend in a way. I mean, it makes it tougher for the guys really far down the chain to be able to get into that group. But once you're there with the Grand Slam prize money and hopefully some sponsorship and things like that, you can put together a decent sort of attempt at a, at a team pretty early on. And that I think that's so important to be able to compete with the guys at the highest level. Other thing I see is just um, is just the danger coming from all over the court now, really. Um, back, I think about Pete Sampras a lot, and Sampras was the most successful player. You know, Rod Laver was in terms of overall results, but in the in the open era total, I'd say Sampras probably was for quite a while. And he had a great forehand and a great serve, and he could volley well. But the backhand was kind of a safe space. Um, Andre Agassi took the ball super early off both wings. Um, could hurt you with the backhand and the forehand um, from either side, but couldn't volley really well. Mobility was a bit reduced. Serve wasn't great. Um, obviously a big returner as well. So I just think a lot of the great players in the past had a, not a hole, but a safe space. But you look at the way the game has gone now um, at a Novak or a Rafa or a Roger or a Carlos Alcaraz, um, there's no safe space. Those guys can kill you from anywhere. Um, they have all the shots. Uh, maybe they don't use all of them enough to be able to use them at their ultimate under pressure. But you can see now with Alcaraz and the way he's bringing the game with the drop shots and the, and the attacking the net, it's the full canvas and really can produce power from or danger from just about anywhere. And I think that is different from the way tennis used to be played. And personally, I think that's a, you know, that's a real evolution and a great thing is, you know, the, the racket changes with the strings in particular, having changed the game and allowing these massive swing speeds and a little more safety. Would I personally like to see a little bit more uh, challenge in there and a, and a little bit of a rollback? I think I would personally. I wouldn't mind seeing that. I think it does take a bit of the craft away at times. But ultimately, uh, the spectacle is is pretty extraordinary. And and to watch an Alcaraz center match, which is the next generation tennis match, or I would imagine even the other day, I watched a lot of Alcaraz and De Menorah. That's also just a, it's a great product. Great to watch. All kinds of excitement. Um, not a lot of dead space. So I kind of like where the game's gotten to. But um, my, I guess the question is, you know, where do you go from here? I guess you get guys who are six foot eight, who can run like deer, like a Zverev type of body, or six foot six, who can do everything really well, like an Alcaraz. I guess I could take it to a new level. Carlos is six foot six foot one, but um, you know I don't, I'm not quite sure where where the progress will come. But you know, history tells me it, it'll come. Yeah, at some point I think we might get to a point where you need to adjust the rules a little bit, whether it's maybe reducing it to one serve changing the equipment back to uh, maybe smaller head sizes or just limiting the strings. I mean, we've seen that in golf, for example, like the room of the chin putter, they, they do these incremental adjustments to make the sport more fair, I guess, and, and maybe more you know, appetizing also on, on television and so on. What we've seen, you know, when you look at some stats, I'm not sure exactly how verifiable this is, but, but it makes some sense is that the TV audience of tennis, they're getting older. Do you think that should be a worry for us uh, tennis fans and, and people in tennis? Uh, what do you think about, about that? Is the, is the future very bright or, or a little bit so-so? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see a couple of years from now what those figures show. I know that's also a continental thing. Obviously, in my country, in the U.S., that's, that's proven to be true. I imagine in a lot of Western Europe, that's proven to be true. I know in Asia, it's not. I know in Asia, the tennis public is not an older public. It's much much younger demographically. 
maybe it's not as big yet, but the potential is obviously huge there. Um, and you see people like, you know, some of these Chinese men coming up, um, like Wu and Jerry and, and Zhang and, and those sorts of uh, personalities arriving. The game could take a, you know, get a new wave in different parts of the world. That's always been tennis's strength and weakness, but also its strength is that it's been able to, you know, sort of move around and create pockets of passion wherever the biggest stars are coming from, you know. Probably a lot of tennis being discussed in Tunisia these days in the Arab world in a way it wasn't before Ons Jabir. I imagine that probably also skews quite a bit younger as well. But um, yeah, I saw an interesting figure a couple of days ago in the U.S. where there was a, a poll of people looking at um, which sports did they want to see streamed uh, on their current providers. People like things like Amazon Prime or Netflix or HBO Max, things like that. So um, it was a poll of different age groups. And actually, tennis was like six or seventh sport in the U.S. in terms of demand, and it was probably at about seven or eight percent of the respondents wanted to see more of it on their streaming services. But the interesting thing to me was the overall population and Gen Z, which is the youngest group, were about the same. So I sense maybe in Gen Z, maybe because of already some of the Netflix stuff with the, you know, Breakpoint and, and some of the uh, big focus on Serena Williams and over in the U.S. in particular. This is only a U.S. poll, but I was surprised there wasn't more of a gap there between the overall population and the younger population. It was very similar. So some shifts in the plates may be happening to some degree, but I do think, you know, tennis is, at least in my culture, just because of the, the huge tennis boom that there was, and basically it was kind of the only racket sport that counted for a while. I think that'll be hard to replicate to get that kind of momentum again, but I do think... Um, there has been a, a resurgence of interest across all levels of society in tennis, but then it's got more competition now. It's got pickleball over here, which is a, you know, a really, really uh, trendy thing. I think it's got more legs than just a trend, but it's taking up a lot of the air and space and discussion about racket sports in our country. Tennis is also lifted in terms of numbers, um, but there is certainly it has some more challenges than it would have faced uh, 10, 15 years ago. And I don't think... You know, the sport has really honestly used until very recently its platform wisely. It's been too much division in the game, not enough communal effort, um, and a lot of uh, wasted energy and, and reinventing the wheel. And I think hopefully the sport wakes up and realizes that it, it needs to work together because otherwise it's going to you know, slip in a lot of cultures and a lot of places even further down the totem pole. Yeah, I agree 100% with what you're saying. I think there's uh, there's an issue for tennis maybe that's been more internal, not not the game as such, but it's more like how, you know, with all the organizations we have, ATP, WTA, ITF, it's all a little bit complicated and like where the focus has been on growing the sport and so on. I think golf did a pretty good job because it seems like, a, you know, a more like difficult sport to package maybe because it's even more expensive and has more of a kind of a class barrier still, I would say. Uh, but but it still does a good job, like with Grow the Game. I think also the, the Netflix series there was was pretty good. I actually I don't play golf anymore, really, or I go to the range. But uh, I really like that series on 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 Netflix. Have you seen Breakpoint? What are your thoughts about that, the tennis version of it? I haven't watched the second season yet. But I, you know, personally, for people like you and me who were really into the sport, you know, it didn't really it didn't really carry. Uh, a whole lot of weight in terms of things I learned along the way. But I think to see the psychological struggles and the focus on, they got a little bit unlucky. <laughs> I mean, some of the characters they picked ended up having pretty tough uh, outcomes to their seasons. A guy like, you know, Berrettini is a very appealing figure. As a journalist, he's he's great in the press. 
He's got, a, I think, a flashy game with the big serve and kind of unusual technique and the big forehand. Looks great. Good to appeal to the young people, but he basically has been hurt, you know, ever since the show came out. So it's uh, you don't get the follow-up that you would normally get on something like that. That's the risk of tennis, of course. But, I mean, I, I think it's, it was a smart move on the sports part, which was a communal effort on their part to embrace the concept. I don't like the fact that that kind of access is all-encompassing, it seems, and then the print media, people like me, even though I'm leaving that world on a daily basis now, but I I don't like the trends there at all. I feel like they're shutting out more and more of the uh, the print media's access to the people in the game at the tournaments, and I don't think that's good for anybody, myself. Maybe I'm, uh, I'm behind the times, but to me, I think you need to be able to tell these stories and, and create these connections in a, in a meaningful way, like we have for many decades, and I think that helps tell better stories and helps the public connect with the sport as a whole. And right now, it's it's all very managed. I mean, Netflix is is a managed thing. I mean, it's yes, they have the cameras everywhere, but ultimately, there's a lot of uh, approval and oversight from the, the sport itself on that. And that's not journalism. It's just entertainment. So uh, part of me likes what I'm seeing, but part of me also doesn't like the, the trends in general in terms of the way the sport is being covered. Now, I think the packaging is, is uh, maybe an issue because you overpackage things. Like, I mean, it becomes like a Kardashians where you everything is supposed to be realism, but it's it's very far from it, right? And I think also the access to players in a relaxed way, or where you can get some like real insight into the personality when when you're around the players. For example, I was at Boss Open in Stuttgart just now in in the press there, and the players are sometimes very relaxed and they hang out with you. And you know, you know, Tiafo sat down next to me to watch the remainder of the Fritz match, for example. And he's a super nice guy, very easygoing. He's, he's a kind of a special case in that sense. He's, he's so so uh, easy to, to get to know a bit. But then the problem is if you create that, like where there are only huge stars and then it's all packaged to be, like it has to be edited and formatted and, and stuff. You don't get that real insight into the person behind the racket and, and everything that goes on, which is so important, I think, to also sell the sport. Well, that's great to hear you had that time with, with Francis. That's what it takes. I mean, I think it's more a situation where maybe it's the smaller events. Obviously, my life has been more focused around the majors and the big Masters 1000s events for, and WTA 1000s for a long time, just because that's where the big focus is on results. But you're right. I think those smaller venues are the place where you can make those connections still. And also, um, it's, a, it's a bit of a, a paradox, but it's true. I mean, once you get to a certain level of stardom now in sports, or tennis, you know, you don't really need the media anymore. The connection doesn't need to be there. You can go directly to your public with your millions of social media followers and, and do what you need to do. I'm not saying there can't be a benefit anyway, but I'm not sure that the agents of these stars are going to see it that way. However, and TFO probably already has gone past that level, but other players that are ranked, say, 30 to 200 in the world are very much in a case where the media connection is very important to them and any kind of exposure they can get or any kind of dialogue they can create is probably useful to their careers and, and sponsorship and also for the public to get to know them better. So there is that big, big split. I think this has gotten wider and wider in my time. Tennis has always been, in my you know, memory bank, a superstar sport. I mean, you had the Navratilovas and the Everts and, and the Borgs and the Connors and the McEnroes when I came along just as a kid. But um, I think that the huge gap and how much um, reach those people have with their own organs through social media versus the rest of the population has just gotten massive. So there's still opportunity for good journalism to be done and connections to be created, but it just, it does feel overly managed now. And also it's just because how much time does a player have at the top level? 
It's so divided up now. Before, you might have had the, the print media to deal with and a little bit of electronic media, and now you have um, all kinds of in-house media to deal with. The ATP website, the ATP TV station, Tennis TV, WTA website, all these different things that didn't used to exist. So if a player has it half an hour after a match, it's divided up in a way that every little you know ecosystem within ten- tennis gets this little chunk of that, and it, it's hard to get to know the players and really have that quality dialogue that we used to have. Yeah, and I think also the press conference sometimes the quality of the questioning and so on can be a bit difficult to get anything from unless you I mean have the chance to ask you ask your own question, but with the limited time, and sometimes the, it becomes so formatted that it's difficult to get any kind of real insight out of it. You know, it's just I I can, I can understand like for you writing a book about a player, it's so important to actually have sat down with that player and be able to actually have a normal chat. You know, and ask your questions not not sit there and get kind of like a you know a, a format of, of, of pre-asked questions or whatever you want to call it right yeah you i don't want to get too inside tennis for people here listening but it, this is an interesting point is that i feel like the deterioration of those news conferences has a lot to do with the fact that now they're broadcast everywhere and also their transcripts everywhere which is in some ways was a great thing for print journalists to have transcripts right you didn't have to take notes keep track of everything that was being said but back in the 90s, when I started out early on, none of that existed. And I think if you had a great question that related to the story you were writing today or the next day, and you were close to the sport, you would ask it in the news conference because you wouldn't be cannibalized <laughs> before you could even use it. Now, if you ask a great question and a new tangent uh, that you're trying to use for a story, the odds are it will already have been tweeted about, put on Instagram and broadcast and used by ATP Media um, before you can even write your story. So it's a disincentive to really have high-quality dialogue in there with experienced journalists. I'm not saying that there aren't still great questions asked, and a lot of times with the biggest stars, you're only going to get that access anyway, so it'll probably happen then. But as you say, it's very chopped up into these little micro-sections, and so it's hard to have that same kind of flow and continuity. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying the old days are better than the new days. Everything Everything has its pros and cons. I don't want to be somebody who's nostalgic to the point of being bitter. I'm not. But I remember after you know, big matches in the past, I remember Steffi Graf at French Open, for example. She'd, she'd play a match um, of importance, and then you'd have the press conference start, and people would actually really question and dissect the match with Steffi, talking about the tactics, not just once, but several times. And sort of, and that point in the first set, you know, that you won, that was, how was that critical to you? How did that change your mind? It really went through the whole match kind of bit by bit. You could say that's a little bit dull by today's standards, but to me as a tennis person, somebody who enjoys playing the sport and enjoys covering it, that kind of high-level dialogue from the athlete about the match they just played, I thought was great. And that's almost entirely gone now. Somebody wins the French Open, it was like, you hardly hear a question about the match. It's about like, so what does this mean for number one? Or what does this mean for your future? Da-da-da-da-da. Or, you know, how does this impact you in terms of your own personal approach to the next slam? It's always looking forward. We don't look back. And so I, I feel like something's been lost with this modern form of communicating. That, that's, a bit, that's a bit sad. Because tennis, as you said before, used the term of talking about uh, Djokovic as a, a chess master. There's a whole element of chess to it. And we don't talk enough about what just happened. We're too interested in what's going to happen next. And that's the cycle of the news and the cycle of social media that does that. Yeah, it's an interesting point you mentioned. I mean, I'm an old chess player. I used to play like world championships for juniors and stuff like that when I was younger. Uh, so I'm following chess still. I don't play actively, only online a bit. But they do that in the press conferences in the world championship. They 
which I thought was an interesting point from you, is that they actually ask about certain stages in the match, right? Like certain like moves. Why, when you were playing this move, why did you think about it? It's the same in tennis. Like why, when you hit, you know, when you started going to his backhand, you know, with high loopy shots, which you weren't doing in the first set, how did that change? It also, sh you know, it requires more in-depth knowledge about tennis from the journalists, which I think is important to get really good questions. But I think the players also like that more because I think the, the culture today is a little bit like, like soundbite. They just want that soundbite. And I think also that puts the players kind of a bit uneasy. You know, they make, okay, if I say something here, if I'm completely honest about something, someone will clip it up and then they will put it out and then I'm suddenly a, a villain, you know. It's, it happened now with the break point for, for Steph Sitsipas and, and it can happen to anyone really. Like, so it's this kind of sound, soundbite culture. I think the players get a bit more apprehensive on actually being just relaxed and talking, you know. Yeah, sometimes I sit there and go, in a five or 10 minute press conference, how many different topics come up? It's like, boom, boom, boom. There's not a lot of thread between them. And I'm not saying there aren't questions still about the matches. I mean, obviously you have a, a, a pivotal point in a big match. The journalists were all going to ask about that. It's just more of the in-depth looking at the whole arc of a match and the tactical details of it. Not just one question, but several. And sort of and the reason that happened in the past was everybody was on the same page. All the journalists in the room to largely were interested in that. And so they therefore pushed the conversation that direction. Now, you might be interested, but the payoff for that is just not going to be as big, basically because people watching the match on Twitter or whatever they're following it on, they're commenting on it in real time, and all those little details are being discussed in real time. You don't want to go back after the fact. Um, I used to write a lot of what we call in the business game stories, you know, where you go back and write a really detailed, hopefully literary approach to a big match and give it a whole feel and understanding. The call for that is much, much uh, more reduced now than it used to be. I mean, I do it on big finals and it's majors, but that's about the only time. Otherwise, it's all, I call it, you're all in prologue and, and epilogue, but you're not doing the actual thing, the actual body too much anymore, which I, I think I think's too bad. Hopefully it'll change. Maybe it'll be a trend. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good to understand how, you know, tennis a tennis match is broken down into pieces and I think that's also in the players minds and but also for the audience to understand like this is there are key moments and we need to capture those that that is the important part sometimes I even think the commentators and that's a very broad generalization but it's the commentators on TV and uh, they they just say things that just happen they don't add so much spice anymore to what's actually happening I mean it depends on the level of the of the commentator but it's like you could do so much more here to paint a more vivid picture of what's actually happening in this match. Uh, and I think sometimes it's just like a little bit too, um, too, too dimensional, you know, and uh, the way we've gone. And that's, uh, I mean, I'm also, you know, a journalist in that sense. Like I started in DC, I worked as a political journalist for like two years uh, in the Congress and White House. Uh, and uh, I remember back then, this was like 20 years ago, and that it was, you know, you were, the MP3 recorder was new, so <laughs> there were no social media. Um, there was not, no like, you know, you could just go selfie mode or anything. So things felt like they were happening more in the now, while with social media, in my opinion, I feel like things are happening for the selfie. You know, it's like you're, you're not watching your kid at school, you're filming your kid at school, which you mm. won't watch later, right? Mm. So, and I think that it has an interesting implication in everything we do in life, this like social media thing. And I think also for the players, uh, I know that they, I mean, we have this issue with, with uh, online gambling and stuff and, and players getting, you know, death threats and, and stupid messages. And that, that also makes them even more guarded, you know, on social media because that is their kind of vehicle to say their opinion or whatever, you know. 
Yeah. It's a brave athlete who goes and looks at their mentions now, I have to say. Yeah. Yep. It's a tough thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's how how different that is from like before you could get some, you know, questions in the press, but but now it's like okay, there's like a storm on Twitter or or Instagram. If I was a player, I probably want to shut it off, but then you you know, the sponsor <laughs> sponsors won't <laughs> be knocking on your door then, you know, but it seems like a more healthy approach to just like okay, turn off any messages or any kind of comments or anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tempest in a teacup, ultimately. I mean, there are exceptions. Things do get really important at times, I guess. Uh, but uh, a lot of times it's just tempest in a teacup, but it's hard to ignore the, the teacup sometimes and, and see the bigger picture. I agree. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to ask you, how did you – are you a tennis player from the start? Like, how did you get into tennis? I know you wrote about many other sports as well. Maybe not pickleball as of yet, but um, how, did, how did you get into the tennis scene? I did write about pickleball. Actually, I wrote, I wrote my, one of my last pieces as a staff writer for the New York Times was I played uh, padel, pickleball, and tennis in San cool. Diego uh, for a couple hours and just was compared the experience. But I haven't written a lot about it for sure. No, me, I mean, I, I'm a hopelessly uh, limited tennis player. I have been from the beginning, but I've been playing a long time. I mean, I started playing when I was six, seven years old. I played junior tennis. My father was in the U.S. Navy, so we were stationed on both coasts and in Hawaii as a kid. We moved around all the time. And tennis was kind of my my ability, my thing that helped me connect with people in these different communities. But I played junior tennis in, in Hawaii. I played some junior tennis in Southern California. I played high school tennis in Southern California. I played college tennis at the Division three level, which is non-scholarship level. And I've played, um, as an adult, lots of tennis, got hurt. Blew up my Achilles at one point, so I took took a long break from, you know, playing singles and playing, you know, uh, tennis uh, at kind of a regular recreational level. Played a lot more platform tennis, which is kind of a northeastern version of padel. Played in a cage in the wintertime on an elevated court where it's heated from below and you use paddles and, and play off the fences. It's a great game. But um, lately, I've gotten way back into tennis again. I've started to play uh, several times a week and I'm playing a lot more of the game again, so it's been... I think really helpful to my tennis writing to get back into it and to uh, sort of feel how the technology is affecting the shots and and try out a whole bunch of different rackets. And, and I've always followed the game, but I've really gotten back into playing again. I think for a long time, like many of us, I was never a great player, but I was pretty good. And you get to a, a point where you can never get that good again. So it's frustrating to so try something new. In my case, it was platform tennis or skiing or whatever it was. But now I'm getting to the stage in life where I forgot how good I used to be. <laughs> and I'm just happy to be out there again. And I know I, was, I wasn't that good when I started again. So now I'm feeling the progress. I think that's kind of what it comes down to. I mean, I'm, I don't love, I get enough competition in my daily job uh, as a journalist. I don't need you know, cutthroat competition in my sport life. Uh, nobody cares anyway but me. Um, but I do enjoy the idea of making progress. And I, for whatever reason, I can feel the progress again now as I've come back to tennis and I've, and I've really enjoyed uh, plunging back into it again. Yeah, that's the beauty of sports, like seeing your own progress, really. So what did you think, like, if you had the three sports, I had to ask you that as well, like paddle, pickleball, or, pickleball or tennis. I guess tennis is, is close to your heart. That would be my guess. But what do you think about paddle, for example, which is huge in Europe these days? Sounds like you're in the same spot. I lived in Sevilla in Spain for about eight years, uh, back in 96 to 2004 in that range. I mean, I was on the road a lot, but I was, we were based there more or less. And Padel was already pretty big then uh, in Spain, obviously. It had a real big boom in the 90s, like it did in Argentina. 
And so I had never really seen it. Um, I wasn't playing platform tennis yet. So I got to Sevilla and my friends were playing. So I started to play. I, I played a couple times a week for a while. I thought it was a great game. I loved it. I mean, to me, the sound of the of the paddle ball meeting paddle paddle is a great sound. It's got this percussive sort of ballistic sound to it. Very satisfying sort of thing. I was a serve and volley player as a you know California hardcore player growing up in tennis, so th- that translated pretty well to, to padel. Um, I played some squash in college as well, so not competitively but recreationally. So I love the idea the walls were incorporated. So to me, padel is a great game. Um, I don't, I'm hardly a hardly a groundbreaker in that opinion. I think it's a sport that has a lot of appeal. I know also interestingly enough, I know I've heard in Sweden they overbuilt the courts. There was a big boom. It's kind of dropped off in numbers. I know Spain experienced that in Argentina as well. So maybe there's some limitations there in terms of what it carries for, either through the appeal competitively, hits a wall at some point, no pun intended. But I, I feel like, um, to me, as a base game, great. And uh, very reactive and explosive sort of game when it's played, when it's played at, a, at a decent level. Pickleball felt very tactical, to me, I'm not sure how many people that are listening to this from your end of it will have played pickleball, but it's, you know, it's got the wiffle ball and the and the plastic paddles, and you can play it with super fast twitch, but then a lot of it is just in this forecourt area where you can't you can't enter to create the, the space kitchen, around yeah. the net. It's a lot of little, little slices and dinks and touches and angles. So I felt like it was kind of like turning from a rock into a rabbit. You're going from sort of really low pace tactical stuff to boom, 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 finish the point. So that part was interesting, having to change the gears. Don't think I'd want to play it in singles, but it seemed like a fun doubles game. But for me, tennis has it all because you got the longer lever on the on the racket, the, the difficulty of keeping the ball in control in that sort of 3D space, um, even though you don't have the walls. It's a bigger court, more running involved. It seemed like a, a greater variety of shots and um, still seems like the king of sports to me. But I definitely see the appeal of the other two, and and there are other things coming. Perhaps you know who knows what else. And platform tennis, which we have, I discussed, is not big in Europe, but I can certainly see that becoming a big thing down the road, other places, and in, in colder climes in Europe or Asia, because it's got a lot of appeal to play an outdoor racket sport in the middle of the winter, you know, in cold temperatures. Yeah, so I, I think that that makes sense. Platform. I haven't tried it, but uh, you know, I, I played pickleball paddle. I'm I'm of the opinion that it's. I usually get a lot of, like, if I bring up any pickleball, I usually get people like, yo, this is a tennis uh, channel, this is a tennis, tennis, you know. Uh, for me, it's more like if people exercise and have fun, uh, although my love is tennis, uh, I'm happy about it. Like, I have friends that play primarily pickleball, primarily paddle, primarily tennis, and, uh, you know, I can happily play with either of them, right? But I think that it's generally a better approach in my in my head instead of being angry, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I can see, uh, yeah, the, the pickleball. I think you'll see more of that. I, I mean, you're not going to see... You know, huge amounts probably, but I think you're going to see a lot of crossover. Like I got a lot of pleasure out of playing, you know, I, the other day I played, I'm back here in the North shore of Boston area. The other day I played uh, two hours of tennis in the morning and then had a friend invite me to play platform at night. So I went and played platform at night. So, I mean, I can see mixing the pleasures. I know from my story I did in San Diego when I played all three, there are a lot of guys who will play padel and then drop the padel paddles and head over to the tennis courts and play for an hour after. So you're going to see, hopefully there's a lot of, looks to me from the story that I did in reporting, a lot of big clubs are going to be created, at least in the U.S. in the coming years, that are going to have these options, kind of like a, you know, a food court of racket sports. And you'd be able to play all different ones. 
sure you're going to maybe migrate to the one in which you excel, but I think people will be happier trying out different ones as time goes on. And, and I think that's good. I mean, I think ultimately, I agree with you. We have a very sedentary culture right now. I don't think that's good for anybody. Ultimately, uh, public health is a should be a big concern. And I think the racket sports mini boom in the U.S. and some other places, even though the reasons weren't great with the pandemic, of course, but the fact that this has happened, I think is it's a positive thing. And you know, racket sports have been proven to extend life and quality of life and all those sorts of things. So frankly, even as a tennis writer and a guy who makes his living in tennis, whatever gets you out there, hopefully with a racket in your hand is to me a good thing. I 100% agree. Uh, what do you think about doubles, uh, by the way? Do you play any doubles? Do you think doubles has a kind of a... Uh, I know Riley Opelka, he came up with this statement on some podcasts and maybe Twitter and, and, and said, like, there's no point in doubles. We could, you know, abolish it or whatever. He, he wasn't really caring much for it. Uh, what's your opinion there? Well, I mean, I can, I can see in terms of the revenue that it creates, uh, that argument, and obviously in terms of the... Uh, people are not going to pay big media rights because of the doubles aspect. It's just not happening. But the counter argument is that tradition of the game is huge with doubles. Um, I would say the women's game still. You see just Jesse Pagula and Coco Goff playing doubles at the highest level. And you see uh, Barbora Krajikova playing at the highest level and having been number two in the world in doubles. And Rybakina, Sabalenka all recently played doubles as well. So there's a huge amount of top women's players that still play doubles. So that star appeal is there and on that end of the sport. But also, I think, ultimately... I've been playing more singles than doubles lately because I'm enjoying my last moments of maybe doing that. But I played loads of doubles in my life. I was a better doubles player in college than singles player. And and many, many people on the recreational level in tennis, you know, play much more doubles than singles and, and can really relate to it. And all you have to do is go out to Wimbledon and go out in the back courts in the second week and see how much enthusiasm there is for the doubles game. Or you see it in Australia and New York as well. You know, the doubles being played, people really understand it they follow it they appreciate it they understand the the athleticism in play and they can relate to it so i think to get rid of it is would be a mistake but i do see rally's point i mean in terms of the prize money aspects and if it's breaking into the singles players uh, paychecks or hurting their exposure i can see why he might have an argument there but ultimately if if a big star decides to play doubles i mean go back in the men's game i mean Who's the last guy to have been high, high level in both at the same time? I guess what Kafelnikov might have been the last guy. It's been a, it's been a while, right? I may be missing somebody, but um, that's what it would take somebody to play it at the high level and like a McEnroe did back in the day, and suddenly doubles is more uh, uh, more your focus, more on top of it. So, but uh, it's it's just tennis, especially in the Grand Slam situation with best of five and men's singles. There isn't the space for the media to, to cover either electronically or in print really the doubles the way it deserves. And I think it's too bad, but it, it's a bit of a bandwidth issue as well. Yeah, I agree. And um, But I also think that doubles, there's a point to it sometimes when you get players that are going to team up. For example, I think Kyrgios was teaming up with uh, I don't remember exactly who now it was Jack Sock maybe for the US Open. Like, and then it's like a little bit of a hype. You know, these guys going to play together. We had Roger and Rafa uh, topical in this podcast, you know, playing together in the Labor Cup, and that kind of creates an atmosphere. So there's definitely a point to including it. Then the question is obviously, yeah, what can you do with the media, and and can you do, you know, can you change it up somehow? I I don't know really, but but you well, know, there's still right. an interest. You're right. I mean, Kyrgios is. I forgot Kyrgios. I mean, Kyrgios hasn't been top ten in singles, but um, even though he might have been close, if he, Wimbledon had points last year. 
But um, he's, you know, mega attraction and he's playing doubles and seems to enjoy it. And that was, that put doubles, you know, suddenly close to the front page. And they were broadcasting it and filling stadiums in Australia when he and Kokonakis were playing and winning the Aussie Open, you know, last year. So that's, that's an example right there of what doubles could be. But then the sport has to create an environment where the top players are able to make that choice and, and play both and then want to prioritize it. But the knowledge from the public is there to support the game of doubles. And I think tennis is a game of tradition, right? I mean, why, why are the majors what they are? Why do the Grand Slams matter? Why does Monte Carlo matter or Rome in those places? Because of tradition, right? And doubles is part of the tradition of the game. Do you think tennis would need some format changes at some point? Because there seems to be like an attraction in, for example, team events. Some players love teams more. There's maybe a, a like some nostalgia around the Davis Cup, you know, how it changed. People want to want the old format back. And, and I know in the U.S. you have the World Team Tennis, right? So, which seems pretty popular in bringing up, you know, some more crowd engagement. College tennis is huge for, for the crowds, at least around the colleges. Do you think there would be more space for team tennis in some way? Yeah, I think so. I mean, don't, don't exaggerate the, the appeal of WTT in our country. I mean, it's, it's very, very minor. It's had bigger moments in the past for sure. I mean, hard to believe, but Jimmy Connors and Chris Everett missed the French Open one year or two because of World Team Tennis back in the day. I think Bjorn Borg did as well. So there was a time when it was backed by much greater forces and had a much bigger role in the society. Now it's it's a minor thing, can be entertaining, but it's not really impacting the overall ecosystem. I think college tennis in the U.S. is really undervalued, frankly. It's a, it's a great product. It doesn't get a lot of uh, crowd, uh, you know, big crowds or uh, big media attention, but it's a great atmosphere in terms of when you go out and actually watch a college tennis match. And we obviously produced quite a lot of very good players in recent years again in the, on the pro tour. So I think um, there's, there's room to move there. I, I wouldn't want to saturate with team events. I mean, I think with Davis Cup, with um, the Laver Cup, which, you know, Federer's uh, vehicle with his, with his agency, I think those, both of those, both of those are, are well implanted. Obviously, we lost the ATP Cup now, so there's a little bit less of a team event thing. The Hopman Cup's going to come back in, in Nice later this year um, on clay. Alcaraz is committed to play for Spain. Oh, well. So it's just a matter of um, you know, how much how much you need. I think we need some for sure. Uh, people think the Olympics might be benefit from becoming a team competition instead of being an individual. I've, I've heard that argument before. I could see some appeal to that. Ultimately, I think the big decision tennis will have to make down the road is whether they stick with the best of five for the men on the Grand Slam level. Um, you're, you made a comment earlier about one serve versus two. Um, that would certainly speed things up. You know, I, I don't, don't mind myself the format of best of five with shorter sets, you know, tiebreak at four all or five all instead of six all. It's true, it's a long ask um, for anybody to sit through a bunch of five set matches. I personally love the format. I'm connected to it from my whole childhood having watched so many great matches, best of five, and seen that momentum build and that drama build. Davis Cup back in the day was some of the best tennis I ever saw. Um, watched a lot of it in Sweden as well because that was such a big event in Sweden. And um, I personally, I'm, I'm too deep into it to reject it. But I certainly can see why there should be a debate about it and um, whether that going best of three for the men or best of three partially for the men at the majors might be a decision that would help... Uh, you know, speed up the game, give people a little bit more of a digestible format. But that grandeur and that epic quality to a five-set classic match is, 
is pretty pretty powerful thing. But that that will be a debate for sure. And and I think what you alluded to um, with the racket head sizes, string things. And the other question I often have is if, if the average height of a player is going to be six foot four, six foot five down the road, should the net remain the same height that it's at for the pro game as well? I mean, the net was put at its current height, um, and I think there's actually a, a bow in the middle of it, if I'm not mistaken, because that's the way nets used to be. You could obviously have a net like that if you wanted to have it directly across and and perpendicular to the ground, but I mean parallel to the ground. But you want it to be the same height when the players are all uh, 10 centimeters or 12 centimeters on average taller or three or four inches taller. I, I don't know. These are questions that you could ask. And that maybe that's what makes the serve as uh, important as it's become. I mean, if a Riley Opelka at almost seven feet tall can hit a flat wide serve in the ad court straight down at the court, I mean, that's an angle nobody else can replicate. But should the sport try to find ways to mitigate some of that? These are all, these are all good questions. Yeah, and I think it needs, needs some discussion. I mean, I know that uh, Patrick Muratuglu is trying this UTS, which is um, uh, Ultimate Tennis Showdown, I think. It's a very extreme variation of tennis with, with the scoring and the cards you can choose and so on. But I think the discussion should be there, and I think it's good that uh, next-gen finals, for example, try a few things, you know, with the five sets win four games, right? It makes, makes sense to me in a way that they are trying something. And then we see, but I'm, I'm an I'm, you know, old-school guy. I like, I like the five sets, the, the story of a five-set match, you can't beat it. That's why the Grand Slams, you know, are so important for tennis, because it's like that kind of fight, you're going down two sets to love and you can fight back, and it becomes this seesaw event. This is just, just uh, outstanding entertainment for a tennis nerd, tennis fan. The French Open, you covered it. We were there at the same time, didn't get a chance to meet. It was a bit crazy, because I was only there for two days, uh, or just really a few hours here and there. How is it for you? You go for two whole weeks. You cover the whole event. How do you work that out? <laughs> well, my life just changed, you know. Uh, yeah. For a long time. I mean, I've covered over 100 Grand Slam tournaments in my career. And, it's crazy, uh, Yeah, it's a lot of – you add it all up. I think I've spent um, – what did I figure it – yeah, pretty much close to four, four full years of my life watching Grand Slam tennis. So, you know, that's a lot of your life just to watch those four events. But I, you know, I wouldn't trade it. But the, the normal thing for a print journalist for most of my career is you are on the hunt for a good story every day. You know, basically that's it. Back in the back in the day when I started out, I would write you know one main story. I would write a sidebar we call it, like a side story, and then I would write a notes column. I'd write three stories a day, pretty full. Well, wow. and then as mm -hmm. the internet took over, it became clear that people had less appetite for. As much, even though there's a limitless expanse available, you only can focus on so many things. So we ended up narrowing it down really to one quality story a day that would often be updated, but be sort of be one, one we call it a byline each day. And so the day is spent basically in a rising adrenaline, starting your day very relaxed, having your coffee, thinking about what you might write about. And as the deadline approached, then your pulse rate started to go up and decisions had to get made and you focus on whatever it was, and then you hope that uh, Nadal or Federer or Sampras or Agassi didn't lose on your deadline. But yeah, always tennis is, tennis is a sport of stars and a sport of upsets. So if you know if a, a big star goes down, you will write about that. So there was always what well, we started to call it our list of must-writes by the end. You knew that if one of the big three lost or if Serena lost or if uh, Sharapova lost back in the day, whatever it was, 
whatever you were planning that for that day was going to go by the wayside and you were going to write the match that they lost because that was what people would be interested in. And that's still, I think that will remain the same with Grand Slam or major coverage, you know, for the foreseeable future. My last French Open that I was, that you were at and I was at, this most recent one, I was researching my book and writing for my, uh, my new Substack site, which is Tennis and Beyond, which I just started about a month ago and a subscription site. And, um, I had a much different pace, and I can tell you, I could get used to that. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think the Substack um, movement, I've seen it with other journalists, like more in maybe the political space or science space, uh, but I think there's a lot of um, lot of room for, for growth there, for you, for, for sure, but also you have definitely more freedom. Uh, so you, I, I, you're excited about this new step towards more Substack and your upcoming book. Well, I'm I'm an, I'm a newbie on the Substack front for sure. I've written books before. Um, I felt like it would be a good way for me to, to manage my withdrawal pains on daily journalism. I don't want to be back chasing the news like I did for 35 years or, or more. I want to be able to have a bigger view and do the research I need. And having a Substack account, I think, allows you uh, the control of when you write. If, if breaking news breaks, I don't have to write about it right away. I can come to it in my time, if I have the time to do it, but I want to do it seriously. So I give people who subscribe, you know, value for their investment. And I also want to use it as a way to give people a window into uh, who are interested into, you know, how these books get produced. Once the book is finished on the doll, I want to talk about some aspects of it with readers on, on Substack and give them insights into the process and some previews into what's going to be in it and, and how, uh, you know, what I learned from the process. Hopefully it kind of creates this dialogue that, I haven't always had time to do justice to over the years. Uh, I'm excited about that. And, you know, it's uh, it's not my main source of income. Obviously, my books are going to be that. But I, I do want to do it you know, with with good intentions and, and do it regularly. And so far, it's been really rich, and I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. I'm very happy for you. It's, it sounds like a great uh, thing, and I'll, I'll make sure to subscribe to it. I will put the link for, for people here below. I had one last question. I'm sorry to bother you with all this question, but I, I wrote it down. Um, you were schoolmates with Barack Obama. The former president. <laughs> Do you have any fun story uh, growing up alongside him or anything? Hey, well, don't let me exaggerate my importance in the story here. I was, I, was a, I don't know what terms you use in Europe, but I was a freshman in high school when he was a senior. Yeah, okay. We, yeah, we were at Punahou School in, in Honolulu, Hawaii, which is an old missionary school, which is a wonderful school. Um, a tremendous place. Feels more like a college campus, so it's very big. Cool. So Barack Obama wouldn't know me from Adam, as we say in English. I was a little tiny guy, and he was a big guy on campus. Would he? Would you have picked out Barry Obama? Was his name then? It wasn't Barack. Barry Obama. Would you have picked him to be the future leader of the world? Absolutely not. He's like a cool guy, um, unusual guy. Not many African Americans in, in Hawaii. Even fewer at Punahou School. So it's more of a an Asian dominated society uh, in Hawaii traditionally with people coming. Pacific Islanders and, and, and uh, Asians, immigrants coming in. Somebody like Barack with a partially Kenyan ancestry is an unusual sort of thing. I think he grew up with a very different mentality than many African-Americans might have in, in the mainland of the U.S. because of living in Hawaii. I think he's written about this in his books. But the funny, the funny thing is that you know, he was a, a very good basketball player, but our team was extremely good. So he wasn't even a starter on the basketball team. When Punahou won the state championship in Hawaii when I was there as a freshman. I remember going to the games. He had a pretty big afro at that point. And, um, but I remember him being a very well-liked and, and respected character on campus. But President Obama in the future, nobody could have known that. 
And certainly, probably not even him. I'm sure didn't he didn't know that either. So, now it's pretty refreshing and, and good. If if he had the idea that he was going to be, become president, you he probably wouldn't have been a nice guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he, I think he yeah he was somebody who just he had a very easy appeal. But I, did I know him? No. But I knew I certainly knew of him, and I knew, and we all we all followed that team that did so well in at Punahou and, and watched him play from the sidelines. But he was only number six on the, on the roster. That's cool. That's cool. That's a, that's a nice story. All right. Thanks a lot, Chris. This has been great. I uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, wish you all the best with the Rafa book. Do you have any kind of deadlines or any kind of release approximates you can give? Look, our plan is to release it uh, in 2024. Um, no, one's, no one wants to rush Rafa out the door. Hopefully Rafa plays for many more years. I just think it's a good time to, to try to look at his career and, and begin to sum it up. This book is not going to be a conventional biography either. The master was not on Federer. This is not going to be a Rafa A to Rafa Z sort of story. So I think it'll be okay, even if he's still playing, if it comes out next year. Not sure exactly on the date yet, but my main writing is beginning now. You're, the book's behind me. You'll, I'm going to be in this position, typing away for the next few months. And, uh, you know, fingers crossed it'll be, uh, it'll be good and something people will want to read. Great. I'm going to read it for sure. I'm going to Mallorca tomorrow, so I'll, I'll see Tony there. We'll see. Okay. Yeah, I was just there not, not long ago. I definitely enjoyed uh, seeing everything down there and, and the installation. So. Yeah, they have an, the academy is amazing there, actually. And, and that, I mean, it's an amazing island overall, uh, Mallorca. It's uh, super nice. So we'll see. But I'm going for the ATP 250, so it's more work than, than the pleasure of Mallorca. But, but it will be fun. Anyway. I like your background there. So what do you got up, what do you got up against the walls? Those, those are all your sticks? Uh, yeah, I have 150 rackets um, and uh, strings and like my, my whole home is, I have a stringing machine uh, over there and a three-in-one machine to measure all the rackets. That one is a personal frame they made for me, one company. I have, have a racket addiction, you can say, pretty much. What, what, did, what did you, uh, did you try anything interesting when you were no, but I'm curious about you though, what was, what, was, what was your level, what is your level? I I'm, I'm play ITF seniors, you know, like the, the events. I've won one and uh, yeah, I, I can play, but I'm not like a... Fantastic player, but I can hit with some good players. Good stuff. And how old are you? Uh, 41. Okay, so you're still in so your good. prime. I love it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it feels like a prime. It's a four, I like 40. It's pretty good. good yeah, 41 is a new 31. I think we subtract 10, right? That's the way it is from what it yeah, used yeah. to. Well, let, let's, I, I've said that myself. It's, it's how it feels like everything. I mean, it's the same for you. you maybe you subtract 15 then, you know, from 15. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'll take 10. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people go, you're playing singles still? I said, yeah, 58, I can play tennis in place with singles. I'm not running yeah. as fast, but you can still enjoy it. But I think there is some truth to that. I think people are keeping themselves a little more preserved a little longer. Yeah. Maybe it's yeah, all that. We're eating better and stuff, right? Yeah. And what were you going to ask me? You said, what, you, what kind of racket maybe I use? Or yeah, yeah. you said you were testing some new equipment. So I was curious about uh, what, what's your um, racket of choice. I guess I'm like a WTA player because what, what sticker the WTA player is using the most? It's the blade, right? see the blade everywhere i was amazed how many people were using it at roland garros so i must have seen a good one third of the field had to have the blade i tried out a bunch like the yonexes but the blade i had a i'm using the blade 98 you know the 16 19 feels that's pretty a good, good stick yeah, yeah like what, what, yeah, they, what they're actually using this is kind of what i've been doing over the years but it's like they're actually using a most of them are using a steam racket an older pro stock model that wilson still produces for the pros but not for the retail oh, okay. audience, uh, and you can tell it has like four white grommets at the throat. So you can see that it's a steam, steam racket. It's a steam 100 BLX. It's a more powerful racket. It's more like a pure drive from Babola or like okay. you know the Wilson Ultra. So WTA players mostly want lots of power and not as heavy, of course. Like they play quite light. I would say Raducanu, 
even Sabalenka not that heavy, you know. Um, on, on, but but the pros in the men's side, what you've seen is that they're very heavy. The older pros like Gasquet, Rich, like um, Nadal, play really heavy. But then the young guys now are playing lighter rackets because they swing so much faster. So you have like Alcaraz and Fritz, and these guys play relatively light for for such high level players. What do you, what do you know about Rafa's rackets? Uh, I have one. Uh, well, my friend has one, and uh, he. He has them really pretty heavily specced up with lots of weight up in the hoop. And it's the first or original version. Like it's the, the 20, 2004. And then he's customized it over the years, adding weight to have a bit more effortless power, you know, overall. Uh, so the one, one your friends got is the one from the 05 French period when he won the French the first this time? Is, yeah, but it's, it's still it's painted as the cortex the next generation but it, you see it in the throat there's no cortex it's just because you used to just paint the cortex on the racket and uh, babula used to do that just i mean that's what they all do you know they have, if the head has flex point technology with a hole in the side that they had in the early 2000s on like i have agassiz frame for example from that era it's it's just painted <laughs> you know so it's it's one yeah. of those funny funny things actually about the pros that it's like why would they keep changing rackets or shoes or or strings they they want to be with what they know right always so, so you don't think so rafa didn't actually didn't actually change models and later no, on at no, all? no 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 not at all like uh, no no i have friends that own uh, own his personal frames as well so it's uh, yeah now they actually released an origin racket from babala uh, in the new design and uh, it's as heavy as rafa's racket but it's not exactly the same but it's as heavy. So it's, it's, if you want to feel like how it is to swing Rafa's racket, which is a log, but fun, then that <laughs> racket is it, it's crazy heavy, right? It it's, uh, it's, uh, feels like a tank to, to swing. Do you have, do you have any idea what it weighs all let it up? Any idea? Yeah, yeah I, have, I have it here. It's 300, around 345 grams with strings, which is not so much. But when you balance it, there's so much weight in the hoop. So the swing weight is like 370. And okay. swing weight 370 is high, right? That's, uh, I mean, very few players go higher. I mean, Mari goes about the same. You have Moya, who used to have 400 crazy swing weight almost. Was Carlos then, that much? Wow, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah so he, they have really weird, both Moya and Rafa have slightly weird rackets, I would say, but they're similar in the way they're weighted up. I think it has some connection, you know, to how they play and, and also being so close in a, in a sense, right? Well, Carlos had, had the, he was the first major player to use Babalette, right? If I'm not mistaken, right? Wasn't he yeah, the yeah. first person? Yeah, name? no, for them, it, I mean, they bought the mold from Pro Kenex, and then they, um, then they got Moya to play with it. And it was actually a soft drive, which is a racket I also have. I, I, we have his personal racket at the office. And that's, it's a crazy racket because it's only 322 grams, which is not much strong from a pro player. But he has even more weight in the hoop, so to like you cannot balance it on the finger; it's just gonna fall off. So it's an insane racket uh, to play. I don't know how he played with this racket. Like for me, I love the racket, but the way he customized it for me is is uh, is crazy. And when you say in the hoop, I'm always thinking that you know, all my guys in my level were all doing it on the top of the head. But you're saying yeah, yeah. anywhere, anywhere in? Are you is it more more top of the top of the hoop? If you want to maximize swing weight and like like you, you call it polarization, for example, Rafa who plays with a lot of spin, he polarizes his racket. So there's a lot of weight in the handle, lots of weight at 12 o'clock. So if you have the clock face of the racket, yeah. it's 12. Um, then you have guys like who hit it maybe a bit more flat, like Novak, for example, which uses a smaller head size. He has more three and nine these types of positions because it helps this this twist weight like the stability of the racket um, mm. i have novak's personal frame here actually on my shelf um it's the speed racket yeah that he's got yeah yeah but it's, it's not actually a speed it's a it's a pro stock model they uh, they've made for him uh very specific you know there are other pros that use similar models 
but it, it's quite specific for Novak. It's based on an old radical, like, and but they they opened up the string pattern, and they made it this much longer, like really, uh, like a minuscule amount extra length, just to ha just to reduce the weight a bit and still get the same power. Yeah. So right now I'm I mean I even went out I went out for dinner with Steph the other. Uh, in Stuttgart to help him with some racket stuff. <laughs> so it's a lot of like technical things. Oh, but I mean, it's exactly right. These guys are like, you know, it's the princess and the pea, right? They can feel the slightest, slightest thing. As yeah, yeah exactly. They, they feel, and they, they are not usually so good at um, communicating what they feel. I mean, it's very personal language, right? So you like, if you, sometimes someone says a racket is stiff and it's technically not stiff. It's very flexible, but to them, somehow the feeling they admit from the racket is that it's stiff. It's like a food, you know, you're like, I'm feeling this flavor, but it's not quite technically that flavor. Uh, so I see that with a lot of players, right? But what you're saying, just so I'm clear, because what I'm doing is it's actually helpful to me. From what you understand, Rafa never really switched the frames uh, in terms of no. 05 to now. All these, no. all these changes is strings, types of strings, right? He, no, I mean. he, he added weight. So lead tape, he did change strings about three times. So he had like a string called Babla Duralast. Then he had Pro Hurricane for a bit. And then Babla released RPM Blast, which is a, it's a very good string. It's a pretty stiff string, uh, which he used very thick gauge. So 135 gauge. Uh, that's like 15, I think, if you go on that old gauge metric, right? So. He then he's also very superstitious, so he doesn't change string tension much. He's one of those guys that like, yo, it's I want fifty six pounds, you know, always. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't yeah, yeah. really slight really slight change clean. for altitude, I guess. That's about all he does, right? Yeah, so, yeah. But he is very pound. even for conditions, very very um, kind of like stuck on 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 one kind of uh, specification. I don't think he's, he's, he's he doesn't want to have too much fluctuation in his uh, feeling or whatever. You know how it is with the water bottles. So <laughs> I guess yeah, that no, means. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Sweden, in uh, Vesteros, uh, one hour from Stockholm, like okay. 150,000 people, city, uh, pretty on, small. On the water? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a big big lake there, a Malaran it's called. It's, uh, it was, yeah, it's, a, it's a pretty pretty place, I would say, like now going back, like I haven't lived, lived there for so long, but uh, when I go back uh, a bit for like a week or so, I, I enjoy it, because yeah, we yes. stay by the lake, you know, and it's, it's, it's quite Does nice. Does the lake connect to the Baltic, or is it, is it an inland lake? It's an inland lake, but you can get out, right? Yeah, I've been there a lot. I went, I went there a lot back in the 90s for winter sport and went back for Davis Cup back when, uh, you know, the Swedes were doing well in Davis Cup in Gothenburg and those places. So, Yeah, Swedish the, tennis was different back then. <laughs> it's not yeah, the same. Yeah, I, mean, I covered a lot of Magnus Norman and Magnus Larsson and Bjorkman and those guys. So The narrative in Sweden is that uh, the Swedish Tennis Federation kind of thought that we had a production factory of talent and then you just like, you don't need to do anything. We just let them grow out of the woods. But it was kind of a team thing, and that that's how they came up. And and now it's it's uh, pretty miserable in a way of terms of talent. Like we have the Umer brothers, but they're not making any real. Uh, and they they're not so well liked in Sweden because they make really aggressive statements in the media all the time, and they don't play the Swedish tournament. So so it's a weird tennis vibe okay. in Sweden. No, I, I wasn't aware of that dynamic. I, I'm not surprised. It's interesting. All right, man. I, I, I we'll stay in touch. I appreciate I appreciate the expertise on the rackets. It's helpful to me. I'm not. And uh, yeah, anytime, man. I enjoyed the conversation. Same. I wish you well. Yeah, same. We, we keep in touch. Okay. Say hi to Mallorca.